there's been an explosion in car car ownership and car car driving since uh, the Soviet Union fell. And I can understand it, but you know, the world it's moving away from that. So they have to look at ways of moving away from forcing everybody to need a car to get around and to do things. So parts of the developed world have adapted that they haven't yet. But uh, again, it takes time. You also have to understand that um, 30 years may seem like a long time since the Soviet Union finished, but the people who are, you know, are alive who still got their education in the Soviet systems. But uh, the younger generation that is, is, is not cut off from the rest of the world can, you know, find out about these issues, share with other people, learn things. So I think on the younger generation, they'll hopefully be, and I see some of it already, more of a push on these issues. Hello, I'm Daniel Zaretsky. I'm an American entrepreneur who works in Central Asia in the former Soviet Union primarily. And you are listening to Gut Talks, double G-U-L-T. Hi everyone, Maria here, and welcome to season one of God Talks, WGUWT, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design and gut feelings. Today, our guest is Daniel Zaretsky, an American entrepreneur specializing in service businesses in developing countries, in particular Central Asia. A small parenthesis though, Central Asia is a region in Asia which stretches from the Caspian Sea in the west to China and Mongolia in the east, and from Afghanistan and Iran in the south to Russia in the north. The region consists of former Soviet republics of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. And it's uh, a region in the middle of a metamorphosis as the countries are kind of recent hence the opportunity is huge to have an impact and to leverage the resources and the growing population to position it at a global scale and I guess this is what took you there it's challenging and your passion and enthusiasm helped you learn how to speak fluent Russian Persian some Uzbek and some Turkish and you've lived there like you've lived in Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and you're moving to Uzbekistan, hopefully after the pandemic. You're involved in the private sector, government, NGOs, business uh, associations, and academia. You've lived there for like about 10 years, right? Mainly... Uh, even more than that. But even yeah. more than that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and I guess I'll let you expand further actually on your involvement at different levels and different organizations and structures. So, Daniel, by the way, thank you so much for accepting the invite. It's a real pleasure to have you here. How are you and where are you now? Thank you, Maria. Great. It's also uh, my, my pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me. So, I've spent the whole year at home in New York because of the pandemic. That's where I am now, waiting everything out till things settle down some more. Basically, you mentioned, yes, you mentioned that the region was emerging markets. And this is what I've always been drawn to, new markets and new sort of service businesses and such to, you know, new markets, things where they maybe haven't existed before, where it's things that maybe have been done in the West uh, years and years and years ago. So I got started studying Russian because it was perestroika and glasnost in, in the former Soviet Union. And one thing led to another. And I first worked in Kyrgyzstan in, in the 90s. I worked twice there and I've been in Tajikistan the last decade or so. Tajik language is very similar to Dari of Afghanistan and Persian or Farsi of Iran. And then the rest of the Stan countries are, as you mentioned, well, Turkic languages. 
and the Turkic language belt actually stretches from Turkey into Siberia, into Western China. There's a lot of different Turkic languages around there. So that's what I've done. And as you mentioned, the, the plan is to move to Uzbekistan. Cool. What was the trigger that made you go there and stay there, basically? I'm, I'm just intrigued because sure. you have a contagious passion for the region. I've seen you talk in different right. conferences and so on. Well, uh, first, I was I was born different out of my mother's womb. That's uh, A. But uh, B, I always loved maps when I was young. I studied Latin in high in school and middle school and high school for many years. And uh, actually, I found Latin was very useful for English. But Latin was very helpful when I started to learn other languages because, for example, English doesn't have declensions and conjugations, but Russian does. And that didn't bother me when I started studying Russian because I was already used to the concept. So um, I studied Russian because it was perestroika and glasnost. I was interested in new new markets. That somehow I've always been interested in that. Maybe it's because my father was trying to do business with emerging markets when he was alive. So basically, Central Asia happened because I, I went to write an honors thesis when I was an undergrad and the Soviet Union had just collapsed. And my advisor said, you have Russia, I have China. Well, why don't you write about what's in between? So that was Central Asia. And that was, you know, <laughs> a new market. So I said, well, this is my comparative advantage. This is a new area. And I need to specialize in this and get experience in this. And that's how I one thing led to another, I guess. You know, you start with Russian and then you expand to where Russian is spoken. And frankly, at the time I went to Kyrgyzstan, people didn't know English and Russian was spoken in, in the street mainly. And that's how I got my Russian good. And that's my belief. You have to live where <laughs> where they speak it if you really want it to become good, at least for me. Yeah. I don't have the ability I'm going to become good someday when I'm speaking it, so... And you went there, right? You, you discovered, you explored, and then you kind of stayed or you returned. So what are the opportunities you've seen and how did you observe the challenges and opportunities unfold over time? You know, from climate to population, to creativity, to languages, to geography, to natural resources, tourism, you know, everything really. I actually visited um, the Soviet Union in um, 1990, and it was still the Soviet Union. I actually visited Georgia and Russia. So that, that was an experience in itself. I was 18, but I went to Kyrgyzstan first time in 1994, and then again in 98, and then I've been to Tajikistan from 2007 on, basically. A lot of, lot of changes. Interesting, you know, changes much quicker than in more developed countries. I mean, there's change in developed countries too, but not as quick as this, especially going from, you know, one system to another. And when I first went there, a few of the things I've seen in the region is, you know, lots of the younger generation is speaking English. And I say that not out of arrogance or English should be the, you know, the main language, but if the main language of the world was Russian or Uzbek or Tajik or whatever, then I, I would expect... Uh, you know, Americans to learn that. So the other thing is, is that there was a, a large inflow uh, uh, emigration of what they call the minorities. So the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, the Germans, the Tatars, the Uyghurs, the Jews, the this, that. There's still a lot left there, the Koreans, and a lot of them left. And a lot of people moved from villages to the main cities and the capital cities. And also because of, you know, these are understandably new countries, they want to promote their, their national languages. So you hear 
here in the streets, for instance, in Kyrgyzstan, I hear a lot more Kyrgyz and English than I do Russian now. So that's an interesting change. But there's certainly a need to develop, you know, to keep Russian because Russian is still kind of the language of communication between ethnic groups and between countries in the former Soviet Union. And it has a rich scientific vocabulary. They certainly need to develop their national language and then to learn English. So they got a troika that they need, I guess. But uh, human capital has also, interestingly enough, during the Soviet time, they were quite strong in technology. Well, I would say in sciences and math and also in mass education, reaching, you know, everywhere in the country, including the rural areas to some extent. So that's kind of collapsed. So mass education, not as good as it was during the Soviet time. But that being said, they were cut off from the rest of most of the world and they didn't have access to it. Now they have access to all the knowledge and all the experience of the rest of the world. They can and they can share their own knowledge and experience and they can they can travel. They can study abroad. They can do this. So on another level, there's a, you know, a certain portion that can that does that is is certainly better informed about the world than, than, than during the Soviet time. And one of the things that I found is that radically different culture, I found that there was a general lack of understanding of global norms and standards of, of behavior, international business behavior, into this, that, and the other. And they didn't know that they didn't know. You know what I mean? They didn't know they didn't know this. But among some of the younger generation, you know, who study abroad, who interact, who are on the social media, you name this and that. So, I mean, if I'll give you an example, the team I'm working with in Uzbekistan are all basically 20s and 30s and, you know, perfectly understanding of, you know, they've all studied abroad or um, and so on. And then, you know, I can introduce them to foreign partners and they don't even need me to talk to the foreign partners. They understand how to talk to partners, how what to do they got their own culture which they understand, and they understand the sort of broader international way of doing things and that for me is good so for doing business or trying to do projects actually i find it easier to work with the younger generation that i can find an easier much easier common language with and i don't mean english i mean a common language of understanding and of you know ways of thinking and doing things and mindsets kind of yes yeah, so i found that that's definitely improving i mean there are many other things you could go into but i think that's a key point that's actually interesting and in a certain way if we talk about sustainability and you know this topic in general the younger generation anyway gets it and is more aware and ready to take action so it looks like it's at, at different levels wherever actually we go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you know a, a small parenthesis here i, I um i used to see lots of advertising for turkmenistan for example um why is it i mean not 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 the rest of the region you mm. know just there why is it uh, just one country whereas when you go there you can visit a region like i've heard you talking about pushing countries or the the different countries to do things internally work together within city right. clusters uh, b- beyond and across national borders right. so how is there any progress made in this direction Well, actually, yes, uh, that's a good question. You know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they, they, the countries had to build their national identities. And, and these are not ancient countries. They're ancient, part of ancient civilizations. But in these borders and these forms under these names, they didn't exist. So basically, there was a lot of inward focus on inwardness. You know, there was not a lot of cooperation between the countries in the region. 
And for example, if you look at the World Bank doing business uh, indicators, I think all five of the countries were in the bottom 10 in the world in ease of trade or cross-border business in that indicator or something. And there are a lot of barriers. And I can tell you that a lot started to change in the end of 2016, start of 2017, when the new president of Uzbekistan came in. So uh, the previous regime was far more closed and the new fellow wanted more cooperation with, with the, the countries in the region. And so there's been a lot of improvement in that. For example, it used to be that to fly from Dushanbe, capital of Tajikistan, to Tashkent, capital of Uzbekistan, it's a 45-minute flight. As I say, the, the stewards and stewardesses are basically handing out the tea and they're having to rush and collect the tea as soon as they hand it out because we're landing. We couldn't do that flight until about three or four years ago. We had to drive. I mean, you can imagine how how silly that is. So now, now you, I mean, okay, forget about Corona, but I mean, assuming no Corona, you know, it's, in, it's a 45 minute flight. Yeah. So the flights between the countries improved and countries have also started to make it much easier to travel. So for example, Kyrgyzstan waived the visa for tourism and so did Kazakhstan for many countries. Uzbekistan used to be very difficult to get the visa. Now I think uh, you, you just apply online, you can get it on. Same with Tajikistan or you can get it at the airport. But I guess the talk was that they need to have, because tourism is such a big part of the economy there, that you have to have a common visa like a Silk Road visa or something that they were talking about. So that's something they're working on city clusters across national borders because there are some big cities, you know, on the border, on, on you know, within give or take 100 miles of either side of the border. Uh, there's been a lot of improvement in that. Certainly there needs to be a lot more, but it's certainly been a, a much huge positive move in the last four or so years. And Uzbekistan being so important because it's the most populous of the countries and it's the only one that borders you know Turkmenistan Tajikistan uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan that borders all of them and Tashkent is was traditionally the capital of the region so Tashkent the capital is actually the fourth largest city by population in the former Soviet Union people don't realize after Moscow St Petersburg and Kiev and the other thing is is that during the Russian Tsarist time and during the Soviet time it was the capital of the region and it contains that the major sort of ancient Silk Road cities of, of Bukhara and Samarkand and Kiva that some of your uh, listeners may have may have heard of in the past. So it has to continue, but it's moving in the right path. Okay, what you're saying makes sense because, you know, we live in this global world, but then this pandemic hit the entire world and then we realized we need our own countries or our own cities and communities, then our neighbors and then right. our region, and then the world. And, you know, it's kind of a wake-up call everywhere to not only to, to you know, help each other, and I'm saying help, but mm -hmm. in a way it is in a certain sense, but also become uh, self-sufficient. So do you see or are you working as well towards supporting countries in leveraging their own resources, whatever they may be. Because I think that as well, in order to facilitate, you know, the movement of people across the region, right. um, it, it's about also creating a good experience for them, you know, making it easy to travel, easy to have a visa, easy to start a business, easy to, you know, incorporate a company, all those things. So I'm curious about that because it's in your region and we look at other examples like Singapore, 
you know, right. that in 50 years became what it is today, you know, a, a financial international hub. Then you look at Qatar and, and, and Dubai and Middle Eastern, right. some of the Middle Eastern countries. It is possible. It's just in another region that is not that heard of. So right. what what's being done right now? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not just me. Human capital is the most important thing. You know, yes, what yeah. you have in the ground is important, but the, nothing's more important than what's up here. That's kind of the mission that we have there. So in Tajikistan, one of the things I was involved with was Global Entrepreneurship Network and Global Entrepreneurship Week. So Global Entrepreneurship Week is in 180 countries. So I started it and ran it in Tajikistan. And we did a lot of stuff with startup events, trainings, talks, expert lectures, you name it. So it helped to develop the startup ecosystem there. And then in Uzbekistan, so we wrote the plan for what we, we wanted to call it Ministry of the Future, but the government accepted it and it became the Ministry of Innovative Development there. But we're not involved in the running of, of the agency. It's running, but we're not involved in the running of it. But in any case, what your listeners may be interested to know is we have a new project just to do this. In Uzbekistan, so basically, these countries are quite rural. As much as I said, Tashkent is a big city. Uh, the countries are quite rural. They still have a lot of babies. So they've all doubled their population in the last 15 years or 20 years. And they're all projected to probably double or most of them in the next 15 or 20. So Uzbekistan currently has almost 35 million people, just Uzbekistan. There are a million and a half, I think at this point, high school graduates every year in Uzbekistan but only about 150,000 university places. And you, you sit and take an exam to get in and you don't get in, well then your life path is generally blocked. And so basically we're trying to change that. So what we, currently most of the universities, yeah, there's quotas, they're state run. There's only that 10% that get in. They're fairly expensive for the locals and most are in the capital Tashkent and they're, they're state run mainly and, and so on. So what we're trying to do here is to hit this middle and bottom of the pyramid, as we call it. So we're planning to open a blended learning, but primarily online university that will be affordable. By affordable, I think maybe we're looking the total bachelors will cost $3,000. And um, basically, the twist is this. We're going to have many campuses in the regions of the country. So this is going to solve a few problems. First, the last mile internet problem. So as you can imagine, the internet is, is not great in these countries, although it's improving. Uzbekistan is a double landlocked country. It's, it's either the only one or one of two in the world that's such. So basically, if there's not good internet in the region or in the village or whatever, at least in our campus, there will be great internet. Doesn't matter where it is, which region. And we know that online learning can be very lonely. People drop out everywhere in the world. So this is going to be socialization. This, these centers will be test, study and tutoring centers, as well as maker spaces, incubators, co-working spaces, you name it, at the same point. And another thing is, is you know, the rural areas anywhere in the world can be more conservative. And here, you know, people don't want to send their kids, especially their girls, not all of them, but there's a subset of that population, you know, for out, out of the region for study. So here they can be right in, in their regional center and, and study. And the, the point of this is too, we will initially teach in English, but we plan to develop courses in Russian also and in Uzbek, the native, the native language. And something else, you know, people say, well, you're offering the traditional degrees. Isn't the world moving away from that? And I would say to an extent, yes, but this is what the market demands right now there. Okay. 
a lot of people study not for the education, just for the piece of paper, because that's what you need. We can't change that overnight. So we're starting with the degree programs and then we're moving on to, you know, we'll see what other kinds of things we can do, but we'll have the maker spaces, the incubators and the so on as it is there. So that's something we're very excited about. And um, we just had our pitch with a major American university. I think it's going to be our partner. And if things go well, I can't make any promises. I hope that the office will be up and running six months from now, soft opening in a year, hard opening September 2022. So that's one thing. Another project you might be interested in is, you know, the World Bank doing business indicators that the World Bank ranks countries every year based on ease of doing business. It's almost done. And this is developed in, you know, with Uzbekistan, the coders are in Uzbekistan. We have a cloud-based system we're about to roll out that countries can take the, we don't give the recommendations. So what is their workflow on that? It's probably chaotic, right? You know, they're doing emails. They don't know who's in charge of what, their Word, their Excel. So we have this cloud-based system that optimizes and manages the workflow. So it's very easy for you to track your progress, what you have to do to benchmark against other countries, do a ranking simulator. If you improve this, how much does your ranking improve to see, you know, who's in charge of what to give different differentiated access to different working groups and so on. So this is something we're going to roll out uh, next month. We've already got some interested countries and eventually it can, well, already, but we're starting the World Bank. It can be customized. We have other things too, but I think those are maybe two particularly interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's also exciting in the sense that I understand why you want to be there because you're kind of involved in building something. Exactly. That's the exact reason. And, And you can take what's happening elsewhere in that sense, you know, from what you were saying, besides the access to education and, you know, you have to start with the traditional way. We're not, we're not forgetting that it was a Soviet, right? right. So the transition right. will be maybe a little bit slower or more traditional, but then you will get there. Obviously the, the world is heading into alternative learning methods. It's as well the Estonian model of ease of making business. So, you know, like you can create your company in, in, in a few hours just online. Uh, everything is digital. You just have your your ID and, and you have everything on it. This is what you don't get in some other Western countries exactly. where it's all about paperwork. You know, it's nothing yeah. new. It's the leapfrog. Yeah. You know, leap, leapfrog on technology. You know, it's, you're not set in certain ways. So maybe you can adapt something else easier. Yeah. And and this makes the experience quite easier and and memorable and, and well, more people would want it and would want to move there and expand things. If you're saying that the education uh, will or is becoming even better, we talked about mindsets, you're doing business or dealing easily with the younger generation. So things would move fast. My other question, because we're talking about making an impact in that sense, is sustainability or environmental impact and so on at the center of the endeavors of the organizations, public and private in the region? Or is it, or do you still need education in that sense? No, we still need plenty of education in that sense. The Soviet, whatever they did, had nothing to do with sustainability. I mean, one of the, one of the crazy things they did was they put these mono mono towns. That is, a, I, how many of them in Russia, in the middle of nowhere, and they just did, you know, for one industry, 
for one, for one, uh, I'm, okay, they had their reasons, but it makes no sense in the, in the modern world. And for example, you know, we have this huge aluminum plant in Tajikistan, but the source of the aluminum, has, you know, comes from way away somewhere else. And there was no concern for the environment. And, you know, whatever we think we did in the West to the environment, you know, you can 10 times it in the Soviet system. I mean, there was absolutely no concern. So basically, there's still a lot, still a lot that needs to be done. Again, that's something that, you know, a younger generation can maybe act on more. And that's something I'm hoping in our university that we will be involved in the sustainable uh, development goals. I think they used to be called the Millennium Goals. And I have a feeling that, you know, these these side things we talked about, these these, uh, maker spaces and these incubators and so on, that there's going to be a heavy emphasis on that. And I have to say, when we wrote the project for what became that Ministry of Innovative Development, we had a lot of these type of projects in there, things to, to be sustainable and to prove the uh, environment. Whether those things are being carried out now, we, we don't, we're not in charge of that. That's another issue. But we had a lot of those things in there because part of the reason is the environment there was heavily damaged during the Soviet period. Basically, what the Soviets did, they, they enforced what we call a cotton monoculture. So they did a lot of irrigation chemicals and stuff to produce cotton, which had the, the local population producing cotton but then the processing was done somewhere else. And that's where you make where you make the money, not in Central Asia. And then, you know, it took over valuable land where they could grow food. So then they had to import food in. And okay. if you've seen the Aral Sea, the Aral Sea, I think, is the fifth largest inland body of water in the world. It completely dried up and full of people get sick and all this. And then, of course, there's nuclear uh, and well, uranium tailings in different parts of the region and buried here and there and, and other kinds of things. So they have a lot of they have a lot of issues. And now they're having issue with smog. Uh, and, you know, there's been an explosion in car, car ownership and car, car driving since uh, the Soviet Union fell. And I can understand it. But, you know, the world it's moving away from that. So they have to look at ways of moving away from forcing everybody to need a car to get around and, and to do things. So there, there are a lot of issues still. And there are things that, ha- uh, you know, the rest of the world or parts of the developed world have adapted that they haven't yet. But uh, again, it takes time. You also have to understand that um, 30 years may seem like a long time since since the Soviet Union finished, but the people who are, you know, most people then are alive who still got their education in the Soviet system. So, yeah. uh, which which doesn't mean, any, you know, but in terms of I'm talking about the, the younger generation that is not cut off from the world can, you know, find out about these issues share with other people, learn things. So I think on the younger generation, they'll hopefully be, and I see some of it already, more of a push on these issues. So, I mean, I guess this will be part of the education process, uh, you know, through the university, but also, you know, the talks and everything else that is done, as long as there's awareness and people start talking about it. Because the smog is bad right now in some of the cities. And people are complaining uh, tremendously. So, okay. I, you know, that starts to force people to do things. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, again, going back to the pandemic, it's even in the West, people are starting to, you know, becoming more aware of it and saying, oh, things need to change. Now it's about making the change or <laughs> starting to adopting yeah. well, our new measures. In New York, for sure, too many cars in Manhattan. 
too many cars. It's yeah. been, you know, one thing about this pandemic has been such a cut down in the auto traffic. And that's yeah. been very pleasant. Yeah, in Milan as well, because Milan is very polluted as well, because it's yeah. surrounded by mountains. So it's all uh, that's the same thing we have in Central Asia, you know, mm. capital of, of, you know, Kazakhstan, uh, well, the main city, Almaty, Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, Tadushanbe, they're surrounded by mountains. So we have the issue. But it's not just uh, the noise pollution, it's the visual pollution. Uh, it's, it's a pollution of lots of different uh, things. And, you know, I, I'm not being some utopian thing. I mean, it, it, if you go to a suburb in the U.S., I mean, there's no way you can survive without a car. <laughs> yeah. But at least in a, in a center of a major city, you should be able to not to have to have a car. Absolutely. And, you know, generally in Manhattan, people don't. But it's still too many cars, man. It shouldn't be like this. <laughs> yeah. No, well, let's hope. Let's see how this will, will, will change. Yeah. I think I want to ask you this question. <laughs> um, you know, now, yeah, now you're quite involved in the region, but back in the days, up until today, did you or do you trust your gut, you know, in your decision-making process from a business perspective, but also moving from a place to another, uh, working with some people? And the other fold of the question is, how easy or hard was it for you to gain trust of the population, being an mm. American guy coming, you know, mm. speaking the language and just saying, hey, I want to do business or work well, with you. I, well, you actually touch on what is the number one issue, which is human psychology. The most important thing for your success in life, and they don't teach it to you. <laughs> you have to learn it the yeah. hard way on your own. And trust is the number one thing. Who can you trust and how can someone trust you or how can you get someone to trust you? And there's certainly cultural issues and cross-cultural issues, but I think even if you're not dealing with other cultures, it's still a huge issue. And right now, I'm much, I think I trusted my, what I thought was my gut previously, but now I'm very confident in my gut feeling. Now I'm confident because, how should I say, I've been burned enough times <laughs> that I'm very careful. I used to just trust everyone, everything. Okay. And when I say burned, I'm sure everybody's been burned and maybe somebody thinks I burned, who knows, but I don't mean just burned in Central Asia. I mean burned, yes, but burned by people from my own culture too, plenty. And I also have to tell you something else. I find that when you go into these sort of new developing and emerging markets where some people say it's the wild west or wild east, you know, it's it's not just locals who have a, a very different culture. And I mentioned, too, that, you know, I felt there was a lack of understanding of global norms and standards of behavior, you know, when you say, you know, this kind of thing. But these, you know, a lot of these countries will attract people from the West who are ne'er-do-wells who whatever had problems in their own country they go somewhere else and they they are also looking to scam and and cheat uh, the locals as well so it's not just you know people have the image oh it's the locals they're trying to cheat well there's sure plenty of that anywhere but there's also the other side too and people working you know so trust is as i say for me trust is a very big issue for me right now uh the number one issue i'm very careful now and I'm careful even with people from my own culture. 
And so I observe people, how they behave, how they react to certain situations. And, I, you know, I don't want to go into um, the exact things, but I observe how they do things, how they are doing. And then I, that's how I start to form my opinion. And, and it's helping me a lot right now. My gut is going to be correct about whether you can work with someone or not. And uh, so I would say that um, why should these people trust me, too? It's not just why should I trust them? Why should they trust me? I found a few people that I can trust to, you know, work. It's again, it's it's, it's mainly people from the 30s and 20s, maybe 40s uh, generation. I mean, there are certainly older people that I uh, in the region that I can trust for certain things, but for doing a venture like a project or a business, that has it's. I've generally found I, I need to work with the young, and it doesn't mean to everybody from the younger generation. It, so um, I think your gut is very important, but I think mentoring is very important uh, to get mentoring. Um, but, you know, you just, you have to have life experiences to learn and be burned enough times maybe. And the other thing I would say is that in this last decade, since I was in Tajikistan, and it's a beautiful country, but there isn't much to do. So um, in my downtime, I decided to undertake an, a study of, you know, happiness, management, leadership, uh, human psychology, all this stuff, um, mainly online courses. And so I learned a lot of stuff that I apply now in my life. And I've changed myself in this last decade, what I feel to be a much better version of whatever I was before that, applying a lot of these things. And this also helps me. You know, it, it gets into your subconscious and, and helps your your gut feeling as well. So, you know, my advice, I mean, advice is, is nothing's more important than human psychology. Learning it, learning yourself, first of all, what are your triggers? What are you this? I didn't know that before. Now I know them. And then learning how to uh, deal with other people and with other cultures. And, I, you know, that makes another point if I'm rambling here. But it's very important in this globalized world. You know, all humans have the same emotions. You know, you take someone from Papua New Guinea or from Tajikistan or from the U.S. or from, you know, Malta or from Italy, they're all going to react very similarly. Like, you know, a laugh is a laugh. But then they have different ways of ordering their cultures. And it's important to learn. So I, for example, give you give you give you an example. I know quite a lot about Russian culture. I know quite a lot about at least Muslim culture, just, I mean, sure, it's, it's, it's different. It's not the same, but I'm making in generalities. I find I didn't know a lot about Chinese culture or say Indian culture. So I've done a study of, you know, Confucianism and this, that, and the other, and, and their history and what makes them tick and negotiating behaviors. I think that's another thing I, I told people once a lecture in Tajikistan, I would do that. And I would also learn in negotiating, you know, I, I, I'll give you an example. I read somewhere that um, the U.S. and China trade negotiators had a big cultural problem that the U.S., they went point by point. And if they agreed on a point, the U.S. thought it was in the bag. No need to discuss. And they moved to the next point, And that one's in the bag. But the Chinese considered the holistic thing. So the U.S. thought that the Chinese side was lying. You know, when when if you get my point, when they thought a point was agreed on and it wasn't and the Chinese side thought the U.S. was lying. Well, 
I don't want to get into politics because I have political feelings about this too, but that's not the place here. The issue is if trade negotiators don't know each other's negotiating styles and cultures, and again, it's a broad generalization, then what hope do we have? These are supposed to be people who are trained in this. So I think it's very important yeah. to understand. And it's almost something that I would suggest should be done when you're negotiating with, again, we have this general global international culture and norms and standards that I talked about. But you still come from your own cultural background. You have it in your subconscious. You have, you know, things that you do. And if I'm negotiating with someone from China, Chinese culture, you know, I think it's worthwhile that they learn my negotiation culture and I learn theirs vice versa beforehand. So we know. So when this happens, we won't have this problem. I'm not saying this is a panacea. Maybe it's a pie in the sky thing. I think there's a lot to be gained from knowing your culture and knowing how it stands with other cultures. And the same, the other side should should do the same. And I think that helps you with your gut then. You go in confident, confident in your gut. So the last point I'll just say is, you know, I wasn't confident in my gut previously, but since I've had the life experiences, since I've done the self-study and uh, the study of my culture and other cultures, I I now feel very confident. And, And the other thing is, you know, you observe people, how they behave, how they behave in certain are they are they you know, and and that can tell you things even on 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 simple matters, you know, uh, how they write a a an introduction to you. For example, you know, people write me and they want some help for something. If they're not writing me, I used to just jump at it, and then you know, if if they're not writing me, first of all, how they know me, why I why I should want to be in touch with them, and what they can, what's the win for me if I help them? And 99% of people don't do that. So that's already eliminating 99% of the, or 90% of the people right there. You understand me? When I write, I'm not putting my nose up because I maybe didn't do this before, but I if I write to someone, especially someone I don't know, you know, why, why the hell should they know me? I'm a nobody. So I need to say, well, how do I know you? Because, you know, I can't remember. I have, you know, God knows how many connections on LinkedIn. I may have met you at a conference once 10 years ago. I'm not going to remember. How do I know you? What is it you're looking for? What can you offer? What can you offer? What is your ask? And what's in it for me? You know, if you're just asking for help, that means you're an inconsiderate person who doesn't want to share and doesn't want to give and I'm going to help you and you're going to disappear. That's what happens. It's always what happens. So that's what I mean. Just you, you observe even in the simplest things, how, who you can trust. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think we're drifting into another subject, but I, I love it actually. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's because you tapped into um, two different things. I just want to, you know, add my two pence worth on, on what you were saying. I'll start with the most superficial one, meaning I will give a superficial example, not about you. It's when you're saying when someone writes to you, and, you know, without um, any context. I wow. get you, because if you think of LinkedIn, I mean, that's the most common Crazy. example. Crazy. I don't get it. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but, you know, you've got people who are executives, huge executives and, and in developed countries who are supposed to know better and they don't. Yeah. I'm not going to trust you. I'm sorry. I have enough experience to know that you can't be trusted. Yeah, like I'm looking to expand my network because you're interested in X. Like, really? <laughs> you I know? don't care. Exactly. So, <laughs> no, I get your point. Uh, absolutely. And I used to trust these people and get burned. Okay. And yeah. now I learned we're all busy. We're all overloaded now with, with all this information, all this stuff. I'm getting all these messages from these people. And, you know, unless you're you're a giver and not just a taker, why, why do with you? And, you know, if you don't know how to write this, then you don't know how to do a lot of things and you're going to do a lot of other things that are not not it's going to be impossible to work with you. So these are just 
multiply this by 100. I'm observing how people are behaving in basic situations. I don't even have to create the situations. I just, you know, basic situation. Or, I, you know, someone asks me for something and I'll say, okay, um, or, you know, write me, get back to me, write me this, this, and this so I can help you. And they don't answer. Okay, well, then they're lazy and then they're, they, 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 they're just a user. So it's just, you know, you, you put them in just an easy situation and they don't react. And, you know. It goes back to the psychology. I mean, behind, okay, let's say, imagine you're in an environment and you meet people. This person will not come and say, hey, Daniel, um, I need this, this and that. And that's it. I mean, you would get people who would just say hello and then connect on LinkedIn and that's it. But people right. will, will not come and say, hello, I need this. Whereas behind the screen, it's much easier even to connect with people you haven't seen or you don't even know. It's just a message. What would you lose anyway? So this is right. why I guess we get more messages or I'm going to call it spam. <laughs> right. But it, it, because there's no filters, there's no curation, just like that. Go well, for I mean, it. I'm not saying God's gift to the earth. But if I contact someone I don't know well, I'm writing them what I told you. I want them to trust me. I don't know if they have my values, but I mean, I think these are just basic human values. And it's like a pitch, right? If you have a project, yeah. at least someone listens to you. I, I, the, the other part um, on which you touched actually is we were talking about culture and human psychology, it taps into empathy as well, you know, putting yourself in people's shoes, understanding where they're coming from. And this is one of the major principles actually in in designing a a project or a venture or kind of the design approach, because it's about understanding people, uh, understanding their needs and and who they are. And and all this is blended. And yeah, I guess... um, well, can I just sorry? Yeah, can yeah. I just say that? Yeah, that's that's one of my criticisms. A lot of these so-called aid projects—they don't put themselves. Now they're starting to do it more, but they 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 do what they think the population needs, not what the population thinks it needs. Okay, and so Absolutely. they're not putting themselves in the shoes of the and then and then you know then so the project doesn't work and then there's corruption and then there's still you know so you know you have this do no harm thing. Well. Maybe it would be better if you didn't even do the project at all, because it's not just that you didn't do a positive, you actually made a negative and you multiply that by all these projects and stuff and so on. And that's why when, when we do these these startup competitions, I mean, this is on a basic scale, but, you know, we, we tell the, the people, I mean, this is that, you know, you have to go out and interview people. The Soviet system, that's the last thing they cared about was what the people needed. They just didn't yeah. have a plan. So this is a mindset that... Uh, the younger generation, you know, they, they catch on to it easier. We have them literally going out in the street during the startup and trying to, you know, talk to people and see what is any, will this work? You know, it's not just you think they need it. Do they need it? You got to know. And maybe, maybe they do, but there's a twist on it that you didn't think of. So, I mean, it's not rocket science what we're doing, but I mean, these are the basic, the basic things. For, for sure. And actually, you were talking about interviews. It's, it's about qualitative research. It's not just about quantity. It's, right. it's interviews, right. it's observations, it's, you know, shadowing, it's testing, it's constant iteration. Um, it, this is, this is what matters actually. Right. So, right. so, you know, you create something that, that is sustainable that people will like. Like, use, uh, love, uh, remember. I, I want to wrap up a bit. We touched on some interesting subjects. So we spoke about, obviously, uh, Central Asia as a region being an ancient civilization 
but recent countries. We spoke about the mindset of the youngsters with whom it's kind of easier to create businesses. Uh, we spoke about the new regime that would influence and boost cooperation and growth of, of a region as a whole. We spoke about languages, about the, the evolution of the population and the mindsets going back into that. We spoke about city clusters and growing across national borders. We spoke about those countries being rural, but also having an ever-growing population. Uh, sustainability is uh, kind of right. not, let's say, not uh, on, at the top of the agenda, but getting there with you know more education uh, and access to information where you come in with blended learning uh, as you're doing. And we tapped into human psychology, trust, gut feeling, self constant self-development and uh, human emotions, culture and uh, negotiation. And we ended kind of with pitching and empathy yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, research and, and um, understanding the context and the people. So Daniel, thank you so much for that. That was, I think, the longest podcast so far, but brilliant. I love it. I think uh, it's always enjoyable talking and listening to you, actually. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Great. Likewise, great to talk. Yeah, but thank before you. Before I forget, well, here, here are chats from various countries of Central Asia. All right. So, so whoever is listening to the podcast should go on YouTube to see that towards yeah. the end. <laughs> That's cool. Nice. All right. Where, where can we find you? Like for whoever's listening, uh, can you share uh, your you know website, social media handles? Just well, yeah. Um, the main thing I use is LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And you can find my name. You see my name there. There's not many people with my name. It'll say American Entrepreneur in Central Asia. I can tell you that we have a World Influencers Network, a World Influencers uh, Congress um, we invited 100 influencers from 40 countries to Uzbekistan in 2019. And this has uh, millions and millions of views on uh, YouTube. Our university uh, will, will have a website uh, soon. The parent company is called Adjacent Possibilities. So the main way to reach me for now is LinkedIn. Unfortunately, I'm a little old, so I don't have Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> You were listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matsloop. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast to listen to a new episode each week. If you enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review Gut Talks. If you'd like to ask a question, head over to gut.com, double G U double T dot com and ask away. And don't forget to enroll in the free crash course on mastering working sessions with post-its. Thanks for listening and see you next time.